When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Benjamin Boyce, and I am a YouTube sensation. Well, some people experience sensations when they watch my YouTube, let's put it that way. I've been working on this series on gender, sexuality, and transition, and trying to platform a variety of viewpoints from professionals, from researchers, from trans folk, ex-trans folk, is that a thing? D-sisters, sisters, cis-sisters trans sisters, a whole bunch of people. In today's interview, I speak with Sasha Ayad, who is a licensed therapist or professional counselor who works with adolescents on gender issues and discomfort and stuff like that. She's been an outspoken critic against the affirmation only form of therapy. I guess you could call it therapy, but it's not really therapy if you're not questioning things and developing different ways of dealing and coping, but rather just there's this one way of dealing, coping with gender dysphoria. In this discussion, Sasha and I um, talk about the internet and the, the internet's influence on teenagers. And I think a part of this whole uh, rapid onset gender exploria um, explosion is due to these online communities, and we don't really understand what's really going on in the psyches. And Sasha has some ideas about that. In this particular interview, we don't just say that all trans people are this one thing or all gender dysphoria is this other thing. That's completely against what therapy is about, right? Therapy is about the individual, not about the group. But anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. Here you go. Most of my clients are all over the place. So because my niche is so specific, people find me from everywhere. Um, and of course, just with the rising numbers of kids who are kind of suddenly announcing trans, people tend to find those of us who are working in a different way. And there aren't many of us at all. So um, I have clients all over the U.S., some clients internationally, and um, I do parent consults on the phone. I have several clients that are here locally that I see in Houston, but a lot of my clients are kind of video conferencing just like this. Mm -hmm. So, And know. how long have you been uh, specializing in this particular uh, therapy? Well, issue? in terms of working with the actual population, it's been about two and a half, three years now. Mm -hmm. Um, I got interested in this subject quite some time before, and as I saw this kind of phenomenon growing, and at the time that I decided that I was going to do this full time, I was working in a middle school, and it was a different population than the kids who um, I tend to work with now. It was a kind of a low-income, working-class families, um, a lot of like Hispanic, Latin American students, black students, African students. So. At the time, it was a pretty progressive charter school, and we started getting trained in, you know, how to help trans students. And I thought it was interesting because, first of all, we had, at the time, no trans students, at least not on my campus, but they started pushing this agenda. And when, um, by the time the training started, and, and I attended this training that was put on by an advocacy group, I had already been researching this topic for a long time. So I kind of knew um, what this trend was. And at least I had formulated an opinion about it. And so when we get to this training, it was so 
overly simplistic and unidimensional. And I realized like, wow, they're really training counselors not to think in nuanced ways about what could be going on and just take this very surface level view of it. And so um, I brought up my concerns with the, the manager of all the counseling um, staff at the time. And she was sympathetic, but the way she kind of responded was, to be honest, the pace of things is changing so fast. I barely understand this, so I just kind of have to defer to the expertise of these gender experts. Hmm. And so I think that is a phenomenon I've seen so much. And like you've been talking with a lot of detransition people. And I don't know if, like, I'm sure you've figured this out. Therapists don't want to touch this with a 10 foot pole. Yeah. And I think part of the reason is because the way the training is going, it makes it seem like this population is almost like this alien species of kid that's hypersensitive. And if you don't do exactly this, they're going to run off and kill themselves. Like it makes them seem like such a bizarre hmm. population of kids and people feel very ill-equipped. So, um, to does kind that of mentality, back, does mm -hmm. that mentality of them being so vulnerable, not actually retard the uh, therapeutic process in some way or stifle it? Because um, I've heard a lot oh. of therapists say, you know, how do you deal with traumas? You kind of you face your trauma rather than shelter. Yeah, I mean, it's the way I'm formulating this is this is an anxiety. It's an anxiety that's been targeted on one specific kind of aspect of the self, which happens to be biological sex. Hmm. So sure, if and I want to say there's a, I don't know if like this is part of the interview yet, but there's a difference clinically between what we've always understood as GD in the past and what we're seeing now with these kids. And so um, the way I am thinking of these kids is that they've misplaced their anxiety somewhere very specific. So if you have an anxiety, like you said, right, how do you treat trauma or how do you treat a phobia or how do you treat a fear of something, you have to face it. You have to recognize that, like, I can survive this. I can survive facing this scary thing. And you build up somebody's resilience and their, their courage and their bravery, and it becomes less and less of an issue. But when you treat kids in such a way that, like, if you even ask them a question, they're going to fall apart and crumble under that pressure, that absolutely retards the ability to just even process what is going on. Mm -hmm. And I find that... Um, most kids that I work with, once you get to a place of trust and a place of safety, they want to be able to process these things in more complex ways. They're smart. They know that this narrative is hyper simplistic and they see around them a shifting population of other kids. Like I hear all the time from kids, I'm so tired of these fake trans kids. So hmm. even teenagers, they know things are more complicated than what the advocates are kind of making it out to be. We're, we're, very complicated people are not just like very simple and you can stick them in little boxes like wouldn't that be nice but that's not how human behavior works yeah there's a little irony in the gender experts and i want to ask you how does one become an expert in gender or did you trace where this ideology came from um, mm. where its source was but uh one of the funny things about it is that they try to make gender so complex by you know it's no longer just a and B, it's A, B, C, D, and E and F, you know, but at the same time, even in that complexity, there's a stifling simplicity at the same yeah. time. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me that we're here. On one hand, 
we've done a good thing by saying, you know what, just because you are a certain biological sex, it doesn't mean you have to be exactly like this personality wise. Like we as a culture have decided, you know, we want to get rid of some of the rigidity around sex stereotypes. That's good. But if it becomes a slippery slope and we become untethered from the reality of biology, then you get into a tricky place. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't totally surprise me that they've had to create like dozens and dozens and dozens of gender labels, because now what we're essentially doing is we're trying to stick labels on personality. And any subtle way that a personality doesn't exactly fit with what's gender typical. But then again, we're trying to shift what's gender typical. So I mean, it's not surprising that we find ourselves here, Yeah. but it's obviously not useful anymore because we've blown categories out to such a degree that we're going to each need our own gender. Yeah. Like it's going to be totally pointless to even talk about gender eventually. Yeah. All our pronouns are going to be first person. Yes, exactly. Like that's, <laughs> that's why we do have like an identity that is developed with life experience and time. It's not like a label you slap on yeah. yourself. Well, did you see that, um, have you traced the origin of this gender ideology, for lack of a better term, to like some sort of scientific roots or theological or theoretical roots or psychological roots? Like, do you know what it's based on? And have you have you seen the need to even confront uh, confront it in that way? Or are you just using completely different tool set to deal with this? Well, Okay, so that, that's why I say there's a fundamental difference between like what we're seeing now versus what we've known about GD. So historically, gender dysphoria um, is very much a real thing, and it's been observed across cultures and across time. So it, I'm not saying that being trans is a new thing at all. But in the cases when people have transitioned and successfully built their life in the opposite sex role, Those are typically people who have known their entire life that they literally think they're the other gender. That's different from saying, I've always felt this vague sense that something's different. And then I read it online and I put it together. Hmm. That's not the same. So people who benefit from transition have always kind of been a different category of people. Now, that being said, I think the reason why we find ourselves here in terms of the mental health community is psychology has a bad track record of sometimes stigmatizing people who shouldn't have been stigmatized. You know, like being gay was considered a mental illness up until I don't know when they changed in the DSM. So I think on the heels of these really biased and unfair labels, we're trying to be extra cautious not to do that again. So we're trying to destigmatize trans, which is good. But the concept creep that is happening, I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but just the idea that more and more characteristics become placed under the umbrella of something specific, we've really blown out what it means to have gender dysphoria. And now the vaguest feelings can be considered like part of your gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. Um, So tracing the roots, I think part of it is because we don't want to make the same mistake of stigmatizing people. And that's why you know, the public and even therapists and doctors are really quick to get on board. You know, they want to be a good advocate for people who might be trans. But the, the idea that gender and sex have no relationship whatsoever, you know, 
I don't know. I don't know if we can draw a straight line between these two, but I think um, feminism has been saying for a while that you can't say that we have biological predisposition to certain kind of behaviors or personalities, that that's wrong. And I understand why. Like, I certainly understand why it's not useful to say, women, you know, you just don't have the disposition to drive because you're too emotional. I mean, that's a ridiculous thing. But when we... When we do this in the context of a culture that really does value everything male, it can be easy to accidentally throw out femininity also, like as a concept. Hmm. And I feel like when you combine all of those factors, that could be part of the reason why we're here. Like the fact that we don't want to stigmatize trans people. We have kind of gotten rid of the idea that there's any kind of biological basis for behavior or personality and that we've really thrown away the value of femininity, unfortunately. Hmm. And so that's part of the reason why you see these numbers are shooting up specifically for girls. That doesn't surprise me. One thing that I've seen in my very limited data set is that there is a reaction, at least with the peak resilience, one of the themes with those young women is that they perceive somehow as the female as uh, less than the male. And I think that that's kind of pushed a lot in a, in a way, like uh, to kind of get a little pop culture-y, the uh, Captain Marvel movie, which is, uh, you know, now it's got a female superhero. Um, in a way, that female superhero is, is empowered, but her empowerment is stereotypically male. male. I know. It's like, I'm going to punch I things. Know. I'm going to dominate you. Um, and that overlooks that there is more complexity to female domination. There's, there's this whole, that's what I, I've spoken about this before, but like when we go back into history, when we go back into literature and mythologies and the ways in which the feminine was constellated a, among the masculine and they had locus of control and power and dynamics where they had to submit to each other in different ways that gave a more rounded sense of the power of the female or the feminine. Um, And I think we've, we've lost that in, in maybe in a way just to perceive the male as um, inherently the maleness as inherently uh, standard standard and more powerful and more rewarded, but that's evaluating it within very particular parameters. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. And, you know, I was, I don't watch a lot of the kind of comic book movies, but I was laughing the other day when I saw something in passing and it was clearly like it was a female character that was written exactly like a male character. She was totally dismissive of people's feelings. She had a really stoic face. She was kicking everyone's ass, but she looked sexy doing it. I was like, what's the point of this? This doesn't do anything actually for girls and women. Hmm. Um, And you know, there are so many, so many behaviors and kind of trends that have been historically female that we as a whole culture have decided are bad. Like, for example, something I think about a lot is that we have this word gossip. What does gossip mean? Gossip means talking about others. And we've definitely deemed it as something bad. But women have always talked about what's going on with their social circle, with their society, with their network. And that's a very important way that people kind of communicate what's going on within a culture. I mean, these are important things. And women maybe do that more than men, and they probably have historically. 
But, you know, if you call someone a gossip, it's not a mm. positive thing, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it's very well, interesting. in the age of social media, that stigma has kind of gone away. <laughs> We're all gossiping constantly now. Yeah, but it's... I think I there's still a way saying. that people say, I'm not gossiping, I'm defending oh. the rights of others, or I am doing this. Like, nobody says that I'm gossiping. Mm -hmm. But I, I do see what you're saying. We all are certainly doing that to a, a different degree now. So in your practice, you work mainly with young women or with females or parents of young women? Yes, yeah. Most of the people who contact me either have female kids. I, I do see a few male clients, but for the most part, um, females. Would you be able to speak in general terms about the difference between uh, the female coming of age or the tools that are more useful for females, broadly speaking, um, that are mm. kind of uh, help them deal with certain aspects of becoming female through puberty? Mm -hmm. Um. Is that even a useful way of thinking about things? I might be. Sure. I mean, I think. Barbaric. I think one of it's no barbaric. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> um, I think something that seems to be really important for my female clients is being able to recognize that there is no escaping judgment. Like this is just kind of my perspective, but they're so fixated on how do I control the perception of others so that they see me exactly the way that I would like to be seen so that they can see me as a whole human being. And something that I find very unhealthy about the kind of trans ideology and a lot of the, the way we talk about dignity in today's culture is that we need other people to know everything about us and be able to judge us accurately based on our appearance or a conversation or even getting to know each other for a few months. And recognizing that as a human being, there is nothing you can ever do to fully reflect your whole humanity to another person. And that like, you're always going to be judged probably incorrectly for some reason or another. And in teenagehood, that's really hard. There was a study that shows that teenage self-perception aligns very much with what they think others see of them, right? So what that means is as an adult, I can recognize, like this person might see me and make a judgment based on my appearance or based on who they think I am, and that's their judgment. But as a teenager, that feels very real. Mm -hmm. And so it's like they need to try to control how others see them, and that's a really disempowering tool because we can't really do that well. Um, so for the but girls, that's, like, that's a very important stage in development. Um, yes. I could see that prepares you for being socially sensitive in a way. Yes, absolutely. And, and building connections and you're looking for your in-group, right? So how do you form, um, a good in-group if you're offending everyone all the time, or if you're, you know, you do have to be sensitive to how others perceive you. Um, but for girls, this becomes really tricky when they have, a device in their pocket all the time, which allows them to social compare all the time with, you know, of course, doctored up photos and filters and all this stuff. Um, hmm. So I find that to be something that's important to work on. And it's kind of a deeply philosophical thing. It's almost an existential question of like, who am I versus how other people see me? 
Um, you know, a lot of the kids that I work with, there are some kind of big picture things that are going on. So to go to your question of what tools are most helpful, many of them are really socially isolated. So, you know, they don't have um, necessarily a lot of in-person friends. They don't feel that connected to the friends that they do have. They do tend to spend a lot of time on the internet, not doing a lot of activities in 3D. Um, and they do tend to struggle with a lot of kind of anxious feelings. I'm not going to call it, you know, clinical anxiety because I don't know how much I buy into that, but they do struggle with a lot of anxious feelings. So when you put that together, it certainly puts them at a disadvantage when it comes to like the ability to parse out like what is mine, what is others, how do I just kind of stand my ground in myself. Um, and and I'll let it, go ahead. Is there something specific about, uh, I guess, in we're talking specifically about the trans ideology, but do you think that there are certain groups and ways that groups form online, specifically the trans ideology groups that really plugs into or really, at least on the surface, uh, promises the reconciliation of this anxiety by making it incredibly inspecific and yet specific at the same time? Yes, yes. I think one of the biggest issues is that they've taken something that feels very vague and they've tried to name it and make it concrete. That's one of the biggest problems because what do we know about mm. adolescence? You know, what do we know about puberty? First of all, there's a biological factor. Your hormones are raging and that makes you feel totally unhinged and crazy. Um, you're trying to adjust to changing social roles. You're trying to figure out your sexuality and there's an interesting thing happening with that, but I'll get to that later. You're, navigating now also like very intense academic pressures like the types of especially the population I work with these kids go to reputable schools they're thinking about college and the pressure is just really intense um and so there are all of these it's almost like a, a soup of like difficult weird emotions happening for these kids and then they're struggling to fit in and they're not feeling quite good enough as a girl right and that's a ubiquitous feeling. We cannot forget how ubiquitous that is for teenage girls to feel like a not good enough girl. Hmm. So, yeah, these are vague and these are, you know, very difficult to deal with. And if we don't see the meaning or the value of pushing through them, we'd want to get rid of them as quickly as humanly possible. And so a lot of these kids start out... Um, you might have seen this in peak resilience as allies, you know, just like empathetic kids who have friends who are trans or LGBT friends. And they, you know, to be a good ally, we'll start researching or some kids will tell me, you know, I heard a word that I didn't know. So I Googled it. And then they start researching and researching. And, you know, the ideas that are being put forth start to click, as they say, you know, have you ever felt uncomfortable in your body? Oh, yeah, I have. Have you ever felt like you don't really fit in with the other girls? Yes, totally. Do you have some interests that are masculine? And then you kind of go through your Rolodex of interests, like, of course I do. And then it just seems like, wow, I have an answer. I have an answer for something that was fundamentally puzzling and turbulent and difficult. And like, of course that's appealing. So yeah, they, they certainly take vague experiences and turn them into something that is like 
It's got a definition. There's a bunch of different genders you can pick from. Read through this list. You can figure it out. And then there's a prescribed set of solutions for you. First, you cut your hair. Then you get a binder. Then you change your name. Then you, you know, it makes it seem like, wow, there's actually like a ladder. Like I can get somewhere. And you get rewarded at every step by the community. Absolutely. And Absolutely. then by the adults now. Yeah. And, you know, it's not true for everyone. There's kids that I've um, worked with or families I've worked with who live, let's say, in really small rural towns where they don't have a progressive you know, school district and they're maybe not um, being rewarded every step of the way, but they always have online. And it's like it becomes a really de uh, negative feedback loop because if you don't connect with kids in person, but you have this whole community of kids online that's really supportive, you're going to put less effort into connecting in real life and you're going to spend more energy on your online life. And oh man, like kids also have a penchant for fantasy, right? Hmm. And pretend. And so how easy is it for your online life to become your real life? You know, it, I often hear it starts with like an avatar in your video game, you know, picking like a male avatar and like, oh, that feels kind of cool. And then it escalates. And again, this is significantly different from GD as, as we've historically known it, which is like from the minute this kid could walk, they were insisting they were the wrong gender. It seems like this is kind of a sub point or track, but it seems like it might be the case that the radical uh, aspect of trans rights is coming into fruition now because the people who are, you know, at the forefront of, uh, you know, changing the laws and being very adamant online about how we should treat trans people. They've been forged by the Internet in, yeah. in this, uh, this self-reinforcing cycle that's also yeah. an echo chamber. That's yeah. also it rewards you for agreeing and can really damage you or damage your status in the community if you disagree or if you start questioning. Sure. So now it just seems like an outgrowth of that. And there's an element of an ego feeding element, because certainly the, the argument when you disagree with an activist is, well, you haven't educated yourself enough. You need to go online and learn some more. Mm -hmm. And that's first of all, I mean, it's condescending. But it also can feel so good. You know, if you're a young kid who's struggling to fit in and all of a sudden you become like the, the school expert on trans stuff. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, of course, my clients are adolescents, so I'm thinking from their perspective. But for sure, for the adults, all of this was born online. And if they don't like something, they can block someone or they can just, you know, report them on Twitter or whatever the case may be. So it's so easy to become you know, very insular in your thinking and not be challenged in any way. Um, and to me, I mean, there are a lot of activists who I feel like this just seems like a power grab. It doesn't even seem hmm. like you can possibly fully believe what you're saying. Then again, that's not true for everybody. But in some instances, I think that is true. Well, you always look at things through your privileged psychological lens, though. Of course. It's because I'm cis that I don't get it, right? <laughs> I'm not well, allowed to think about things that are not within my narrow purview hmm. of existence. So what about um, false negatives? I mean, that could be like a specter of this part of the trans discussion. Uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria could be taken up by you know, conservative groups and very hardcore anti-trans groups yeah. and use that to completely lay waste yeah. to 
every instance yeah. of gender yeah. dysphoria. So that is a concern. Yeah. yeah, is it a concern? And then have you like been able to diagnose? Like, are you developing with your colleagues like ways of of diagnosing? Um, like so reducing the false positives and the false negatives and yeah so there's two questions so the first one in there i actually have been kind of thinking about this more and trying to share my ideas about this on twitter because i do see some people who because there's this rogd they try to dismiss trans as a concept altogether and i don't think that's useful because again Trans people have always existed. And so we need to have a place in society to understand the trans identity as a thing that is legitimate. So you're right. I mean, it can become just in the same way that it became a slippery slope to detach gender from like sex. It can become a slippery slope with any concept. Like this is always a danger, um, you know, the way our our minds can push something too far. Um, But to... You know, what the activists are trying to do, it's kind of like saying, well, because this idea could be misused, we shut down the whole idea. And I find actually that this is this is rhetoric that as I've gotten older and kind of learned more about various perspectives on things, that's rhetoric that I think kind of belongs in the left. Like, I see that a lot. Like, this idea is dangerous because at another time it was used to justify this or that thing. And I've realized that's a slippery slope, and I think I've been guilty of it in the past. Like, my views have changed a lot. But um, Hmm. that's really dangerous because we have to be able to separate an idea from how someone may misuse the idea. And ROGD is really clearly a thing that we have to pay attention to. And it is definitely within the best interest of trans people and trans advocates to say, you know what, there is a distinct difference between a trans person who will benefit from transition and a person who might be temporarily confused by what they're seeing. Like, it would benefit everybody if we could just kind of come to a place to acknowledge this. Um, and the second part of your question was... Oh, I knew you were going to ask that and I didn't write it down. Because <laughs> I had it in my mind and then well, it away the, the weaponization of rogd and then uh the like a oh, okay. diagnostic yes. tool yes yes okay well okay so here's here's why this is very tricky like i said there's a clinical population of gd people that we've known about historically that present a certain way what we also know i'm talking about childhood gd right what we also know about that population is something between 60 and 90 percent of those people will desist and become happy healthy gay adults that's a fact too okay it turns out to be linked to their sexual orientation yes yes so and and people know this but again i don't know why we haven't been able to connect dots we know that as a clinician it is almost impossible to tell the difference between a dysphoric child who will transition happily and one who will just become a happy, healthy gay adult. So my perspective is we shouldn't be transitioning children at all. And if it was so dangerous to be an unaffirmed trans kid, where are all of the, you know, thousands of kids in the past that have like committed suicide because they weren't affirmed as trans? Like there's just it doesn't hold water. Like the activists mm. try to say, well, if you don't affirm them, they're at a risk. Because well, they'll that... be stuck in the wrong body, like puberty right. will 
imprint that on them. In the history of trans adults existing, how did they get to adulthood then? You know? Well, they never had that option, though. They never had the option to medically transition. So So now that it's an option. But that's the thing. How dangerous is that? That's like saying, well, I'm going to give you this. It's like giving someone a poison so you can give them the antidote. Hmm. We're teaching kids that they could be trans even if they've never thought about it before. And then we're saying, oh, and if you do decide that you're trans, you need to transition now or you're probably going to kill yourself. That is so dangerous. I mean, I've heard from kids, you know, this question of like, I'm afraid I might kill myself. And when I ask them, why do you think that? Well, and then they'll list a statistic. They're not saying, well, because, you know, at night I think about it a lot. They're saying, well, statistically I might. And so with, with teenagers being highly suggestible, how is it morally sound to tell kids you might kill yourself as though killing yourself is like, you know, some monster that just comes to your room and takes over you momentarily. That is the Mm -hmm. most irresponsible thing to tell children. And I just don't understand how clinicians can do that with a clear conscience. Well, it just it doesn't seem that 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 this way of framing the argument came from clinicians or came from scientific research. It really seems that it came from a version of postmodern theory, manipulation of feminism and the gender studies. And then, and then just like, and then it breached, it breached from these little journals that are just written and published by people who all agree with themselves. And then it spilled out and online and then it mutated into this cultural force. That's what it seems like to me. I I totally agree. And I guess maybe I have too high expectations. Um, But I do think as clinicians, we have to be thinking critically. We have to think about what we know, right? Activists, it's not their job to understand like human nature and patterns of behavior. That's our job. Hmm. You would hope that they would want to know human behavior if they want to change the world in the right way. (laughs) It would only be responsible if you want to change society to understand society and understand the individuals that comprise it. But that's right. But activists, no matter what you're kind of advocating for, you still kind of have tunnel vision in a way, right? They're thinking about their goals. They're thinking about what they want. And as a therapist, I believe it's my job to think big picture about like, what are humans? What do we know about them? What do we know about teenagers? What do we see happening in society? And I do think clinicians have an obligation to be thinking about that because if we are just the puppets of any activist group that comes along, we're not really doing our job as therapists. That's not how we're supposed to be operating in our professional ethics and 15 years from now it'll do even more harm to the uh, status of psychology as a discipline um, because it'll be proven wrong again like the overuse of lobotomies or you know, yeah uh, yeah multiple personalities or something like i that. just finished reading a book called crazy like us by ethan waters and he talks about the american conceptions of mental health and mental illness and what happens when they kind of get injected into other cultures and how really these ideas spread like wildfire like so for example um in hong kong there was a 
uh, one therapist who specialized in eating disorders prior to, I think, the 80s. And they were very, very rare. They would happen to, like, working-class women, and they all had kind of a certain etiology. They would have some kind of traumatic event in their life happen, and then all of a sudden they would develop a somatic symptom that made them believe that they couldn't digest food or couldn't eat like they felt a lump in their throat or like a pain in their stomach and they stopped eating and they would try to eat but they couldn't eat and they'd become very emaciated and thin and that's how eating disorders looked in Hong Kong and then there was a case where a girl with a similar ideology passed out like in a large public space and it became very um, sensationalized and when it was discovered that she had this type of eating disorder. They started to contact American psychiatrists and psychiatrists and journalists. And the American ideology of eating disorders had to do with body image and, you know, media representations of thin women and fear of being fat and like trying to control what you eat on purpose. And they started to report that that's what had happened to this girl in Hong Kong. Meanwhile, the psychiatrist there was like, no, that's not what happened. She actually had a very different ideology. Wow. So what ended up happening is in Hong Kong, they started reporting about this American eating disorder kind of trajectory. And guess what happened? Young affluent women in Hong Kong started to develop eating disorders the way they look here. Hmm. And it completely changed the way eating disorders appears in that culture. And the numbers, of course, rose astronomically. And the whole book is interesting scenarios like this from all over the world. You would love it. It's called Crazy Like Us. That's a very fascinating question, how how pathologies shape culture. And then and eventually probably get ink. And then the how... way we think of pathology. And yeah. it's not the same across the board. You're right. Like a depression, how we think of depression in America is not the same as what a depressive cluster symptom would look like in a different country or at a different time period. So th the idea that these um, diagnoses are somehow immutable and like supposedly fit this DSM criteria to a T, that in and of itself is not really true. And so to go back to your question about diagnosis, you know, how, how accurate are these diagnoses really? Disorders are a social construct. Is that your argument? Yeah, it's a story that we kind of tell ourselves. You know, a great example is if you look at um, the ideas that we have around depression, we have now something called smiling depression, which is like a literal thing you can look up on the Internet where, you know, you function really well. Right. So it no longer impacts your ability to function. You have a job. Everything's good. You have friends and you seem happy on the outside. But on the inside, you're kind of sad. How is that something that we should be stamping with a label? Isn't that like part of the human experience? Well, part of the human experience is naming everything and having a story for everything. It's that um, to go back to one of the atheist arguments against um, there being a divine will is that we are an adaptive characteristic of uh, of how we formed was to project intentionality onto the environment. And that helped us to make sense out of things, um, you know, and then back in the old times, we'd call it a God. Um, yeah. But now it seems like 
we don't have these demons lurking in the woods anymore. We have the demons in the DSM, DSM like lurking the, these uh, semi. Uh, they're, they're narratives, so they're they're fictional entities yeah, yeah. that that plug in and harmonize with with actual somatic characteristics. And so yeah. it seems like to me, I wonder if a psychologist that's got the tools and the mastery is uh, diagnoses these clusters of symptoms and then tries to work on a narrative level to give the person a, a way of of talking about and and recognizing those symptoms um in a way and one step of you know overcoming that is to make an umbrella for all these things but as you advance in that you break it apart into like these smaller units sure sure well i think we we want like you said an explanation right like if you are dealing with some discomfort and there was some reason for it that seems a lot more attractive than like oh, this is the drudgery of life sometimes. Like, that's not a very appealing perspective, right? Or that, like, you have to really examine whether your life has meaning and purpose. Like, that's hard. <sighs> Could you just give me some diagnosis or something <laughs> and a drug? Um, but, yeah, I mean, interestingly, the book also talked about this idea that we think in the West that if you give somebody a label, it will destigmatize, right? So they were talking specifically about um, I think schizophrenia, like, or maybe it was depression. If you give someone a label and you explain, well, this is just brain chemistry, then we think that that will destigmatize it for that person, that they'll be able to better integrate into society and not like blame themselves and so on and so forth. But actually, they found that it has the opposite effect that like when we think everything is brain chemicals, we treat people differently because we think they're fundamentally different in a way. So I think part of the reason that psychiatrists and psychologists do this is they think this is going to give a person an explanation that might take some of the burden or the guilt off of them. Like, it's not your fault that you're having this experience. It's your brain chemistry or it's just this disorder. Um, but it, of course, doesn't really lead us to a place of resolution. Well, at the same time, it's not necessarily useful to think of your condition or disorder as your fault necessarily. But to say that it's not your fault can go too far from you having any power over your yeah. situation. Yeah. So it's not necessarily your fault that you are in a bad way, but it can be your, your, your potential mm -hmm. to develop meaning in life by confronting this right? and, and figuring out and cause you're, you're going to release a lot of wisdom in, yes. in confronting this and coping with this. And that's a fundamentally different goal, right? you're talking about finding a way to make sense of your suffering as opposed to let me eradicate my suffering. Those mm -hmm. are different goals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned something, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't ask this. I always feel a little, uh, out of line, but you mentioned something about the intersection or you hinted at the intersection of sexuality and this kind of, oh. uh, and how that feeds into the emerging sexuality, the discovering of sexuality meets the internet. And then uh, what happens? Well, it's the other way around. The internet confronts the kid and says, Hey, time to develop your sexuality. Here's what's happening. I didn't know this at all until I started working with this population. In the past, when people are figuring out their sexuality, here is a very crude example of how that might look. <laughs> Let's say uh, an adult gay man is thinking back about his childhood and he realizes like, I'm getting a boner whenever this cute guy 
comes and sits next to me in class. Or when I'm like at home and I'm, you know, masturbating, I'm fantasizing about a boy from my school. That is how you would develop your sense of sexuality, right? It is a visceral experience based on your actual attractions, your fantasies, your ideas, your daydreams. And that's how you figure out if you're gay or bisexual or whatever the case may be. But kids today are doing something in exact opposite order. They are going online and they're reading about all these different sexual identities. There's lesbian, there's pan, there's bisexual, there's all these things. And they're reading descriptions of them and trying to figure out which one is them. Meanwhile, when you ask them about, well, who do you have a crush on or who do you like? They don't really like anybody yet. Well, you know, when you're doing self-pleasure, who do you think of? Oh, that's gross. I've never done that. Like, oh, well, do you want to kiss anybody at your school? Who do you like want to touch? Like, oh, no, I don't like anybody. So it's a very interesting way to figure out your sexuality because those same kids who seem aversive to a lot of actual intimacy, they've labeled themselves something, whether it's bi, pan, whatever the case may be. Meanwhile, they don't seem to have the actual sexual curiosity that backs up that label. And that is something I didn't really understand until I started working with these kids. It's really different from the way I was when I was a kid or like anybody I knew developing their sexual identity in the past. You don't seem necessarily have a moral stance on that. You, the way that you described that was that you're describing what is happening. What, what do we do about that? Is that worrisome? What are oh, the problems? Of course it's worrisome. For sure it's worrisome. So um, there's a researcher named Jean Twenge who did research on um, the iGen population, which are kids born after 1995, right? So she discovered that one of the interesting things about this cohort is that they're hitting a lot of the kind of milestones of development much, much later. Some of them positive, some of them negative. So, for example, they are much older when they get their first job. They're much older when they kind of leave the house or um, start, you know, doing a lot of things independently. And they're also older when they first have sex. They're having less sex. They're not drinking as early. They're not trying drugs or smoking as early. And so that was a really interesting finding. To me, this has something to do with what I'm seeing in terms of this like cart before the horse sexuality thing. If kids are, you know, there are a lot of theories about why this is happening. So some people say, you know, kids all have access to pornography and pornography also looks fundamentally different today than it did, let's say 20 years ago. So, you know, perhaps kids are seeing pornography that seems for girls at least, and probably boys too, maybe seems scary or really intimidating or not something they're interested in. Um, and then I also think, and I know this may get controversial, but the idea that sex can be this informed consent, like organ touching is so antithetical to how natural crushes and romance develops. So it's like either they have this like crazy porn, which is also mechanical and impersonal and probably not very appealing, or this idea that like if a guy tries to hold your hand and you didn't give him consent, then he's like sexually abusing you. That's not helpful. Yeah. It seems like there. This might be a little too wooey for you but it seems like they're they're processing their sexuality through their mind 
and their intention rather than discovering it from like a chthonic yes. place or, or like this welling up of some you know, dark, fiery force. Uh, it's rather yes. and 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 then that's reinforced by this uh, consent culture that, you know, is now placed on them in colleges where, you know, you have to ask all these different things. So the brain is always active. And then that's going to lead to like dissatisfaction. That's going to lead to not really like exploring the wide variety of euphoria yeah. uh, within that. Um, that might even lead to, to pornography over use or abuse because they can't, they, they just can't relax around another person because they have to do all this talking and thinking about it. Yeah. So just, I did an interview with a friend of mine who's, um, she's a somatic sex educator and she's an Ayurvedic practitioner and a yoga teacher. And, um, I was interested in why my population of kids seems to be really averse to self-pleasure. I was really interested in this. And so we had this really long and amazing conversation about how feeling an implicit sense of safety in the body is required for you to kind of explore what feels nice. I mean, that's a pretty basic visceral question. What do you like? What feels nice on your skin? What do you enjoy experiencing? And some of the things that people have to do to feel that implicit sense of safety in their body is vigorous play as children, you know, being able to be outdoors and like maybe fall off a tree sometimes or play and explore your world in 3D and understand proprioception and sensory experiences. And if you have kids whose play is relegated to tapping a on a screen, yeah. that's doing something fundamentally different to what childhood has always kind of been. You know, kids are not unsupervised. They don't like play outside by themselves. And that's a very important part of how we develop like our senses, our you know, five senses. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, the, the hierarchy of needs, but just yeah. superimposed over a hierarchy of development. And when sexuality, uh, you know, historically or evolutionarily speaking, when sexuality comes into, you know, activation, a lot of other things have usually happened first. And so the person's more or less prepared for that, more or less comfortable in their own body, more or less able to, you know, be aware of the, the cultural circumstances in a physical environment of how bodies sure. interact with each other. Sure, you know. sure. And to know that if I feel overwhelmed, that my body is still a safe container to have that huge emotion. Could you unpack that? That's a profound idea. I... Yeah. So a trend that um, they talk about in The Coddling of the American Mind by Haight and Lukianoff is that um, there's a rise in safetyism and it's kind of like helicopter parenting. And I think this is kind of a two-way street, it's an interaction between kids and parents. I see that there's this idea, and this is partially also concept creep in psychology, but there's an idea that parents have that if my children become upset, I have to prevent that and it's not okay. Like that that's somehow traumatizing, that upsetness itself is traumatizing, right? Parents seem to think this. I don't agree with it. That seems to be a thing that parents think. And so, you know, if you don't want your kid to get injured, you know, you want to make sure everything is super safe for them. If you don't want your kid to feel left out, you also have to start managing their social interactions. And so 
I think a lot of times kids grow up in, in such a way that parents are trying to prevent them from ever being sad or upset. You know, I often get calls from parents that I don't work with yet and they might report, well, my, you know, my child was crying for a while, so I'm really worried about them. Well, you know, they're also a child and they're a teenager. And do you remember being a teenager? Like it's hard sometimes. And so people tend to think that big emotions in a child means that something is fundamentally wrong or that they have depression or some disorder. Hmm. And, you know, I think when you look at the rhetoric and trans ideology to kind of loop this back together, the idea that like, if you feel discomfort, you are somehow in danger that kind of goes right in line with this type of thinking that yeah. like kids should never be upset. Nobody should ever be upset or uncomfortable or bothered by something or even going through like a really deep brooding period of um, self-reflection and sadness for a few months. Like that might be very useful. You might learn something that you need to know about your life. But like if we try to sterilize all of our kind of emotional state all the time, you know, how are we going to like, get anywhere well there's a lot of different problems with that it's going to come back around they're not going to be equipped for when feelings do arise and then like this is kind of selfishly but artistically our our society is just going to be castrated or fixed (laughs) i know i know i think about that all the time like i'll be listening to like an amazing artist or and like oh they were so tortured and like maybe that's not something we should eradicate from society. Like, of course, I have empathy for people who are dealing with difficult emotions, but humans have always found useful and creative ways of channeling that. So to say that those intolerable emotions are dangerous to us, that's just patently wrong. Well, it's, yeah, and it, it's, hor- it's, a, it's a horribly ill-informed view of the human entity or animal. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes me think about the two-year-old, the, the very willful two-year-old. I, I worked with two-year-olds for about a year and a half, just just two-year-olds, and they drove me crazy. And the <laughs> ones that the ones that drove me crazy the most were just the most willful yeah. creatures. Oh, yeah. oh, and yeah. the way that I helped myself become bigger than them and to be a container for them and not to be dominated by them was to understand that the, the kids who are most willful are actually going to be the most powerful in the world. They're going to have the most ambition and they're going to have the capacity to do some really great things. Yeah. So yeah. I just need to like help shape that will in a way. The same thing with depressive teens, with very emotional uh, people, boys and girls, um, to, to rob them of that experience. It, there's a way to contain them and make them safe that doesn't suffocate them and that still allows them to really like, you know, take that next step of individuation or of really understanding their capacity to feel the, the, the human organism. We have this mind that is phenomenal. We have this range of feelings yeah. that, that, that are not really explored and trying to control that. It might be come from a good place, but I just think it's just so sad and it's such a small view of us. But It is. It really is. You know, I hear you say that and I think about 
how, how, let's say someone was watching who would disagree with you, they might say something like, you know, if you have ever had OCD, for example, it's so debilitating. And how can you say that this is something that no one should rob me of? Right. Okay. I think there are certain types of unhealthy patterns that maybe don't have some sort of purposeful, meaningful use, but it's how do we try to understand those patterns that really matters? Because if you look at OCD and you say, well, let me just completely try to eradicate this, whether it's through like a certain type of therapy or through drugs, you might be missing that maybe that pattern itself is trying to tell the person something else. Yeah. Like maybe these symptoms are a sign or an alarm bell for the person to kind of look at their situation in a new way. So even the people who you're talking about, it's not that we should either let them stay and wallow in their suffering or we should eradicate it with some kind of shortcut. It's that like, can we look at these experiences and these symptoms, let's say, from a place of symbolic or curiosity or what else is this telling us about the person? Mm -hmm. And if a person can independently find some way to manage their life, that's probably pretty good. You know, yeah. um, the fact that we always kind of defer to a medical model and the psychiatrists and the doctors and the counselors, like there's something about that too, that is not right. And I'm a counselor, but I still don't think people should all have a counselor. Insofar as you have that attitude, that's probably a very strong position that, because it shows that you you want your clients to eventually leave you. Your job is yes. to run yourself out of business. Basically, yes. Yes. Totally. Totally. Um, yeah. Which goes to say like even going so far as like eradicating like this very special niche and, and figuring out enough so that it doesn't occur at the scale that you're seeing it occur and, yeah. and using that as a stepping stone. Are there symbolic tools specifically for young girls that you found are useful for them to, to navigate through this field of gender dysphoria or rapid onset uh, teenage dysphoria? Symbolic tools. Um, you know, it really depends on the client. Like the, yes. the approach that I use is pretty eclectic. And so if I have a client who's really intellectually inclined, we might talk philosophy. If I have a client who's, um, you know, very athletic or physical, we might do something different. Um, but I do use the idea of, of the hero's journey sometimes with kids, um, particularly just from the angle that it's the thing they're likely avoiding the most that might have something really valuable for them. Um, I, I don't know. You know, I'm still developing yeah. my knowledge of how to use symbolism in therapy. It certainly was not the way I was trained in my graduate work. Um, but I've been reading, for example, a lot more young and I'm finding it very, very valuable as a way to kind of look at these clients and what's going on with them. But I'll have to think about that question about uh, probably on a day to day basis. I'll, I'll say something and I'll say, Ooh, this is, this is certainly symbolic, but off the top of my head, there's nothing standard that always ends up coming up. Mm -hmm. Do you confront, let's, let's say something controversial. Do you think that the uh, idea of patriarchy comes up over and over again as like a, a way of uh, becoming even more dissociated from the culture? Like, do you mm -mm. think that that's a useful idea 
Um, or do you think that it's prone to abuse in the gender war and the, especially the developmental gender uh, trajectory? Well, I guess there's two levels of that. Like one level is what do I think about that philosophically? And then does it come up in my work? I mean, my kids are not talking about the patriarchy, but what they are doing is they are certainly influenced by a lot of ideas distilled from that perspective. So a lot of kids do believe that um, if they were more feminine presenting that they would be more afraid of men. Like I've heard that on lots of different occasions. So fee okay, so female clients who present in a masculine way, they might talk about how if they were more feminine presenting, they would be more afraid of walking down the street at night if a guy was walking by them or they would feel more vulnerable, right? Like it's a certainly a fact that a lot of the kids I work with see this masculine identity as a self-protective mechanism. So they may not be saying the words the patriarchy, but that's certainly part of it. Um, that being feminine would inherently put you in danger. I think they've all internalized that idea. Mm -hmm. And there's some truth to that. I mean, just mm -hmm. poetically speaking, that the feminine being more tender, being more vulnerable. Um, sure. To, to, to wrap yourself in a masculine-ish shell could be a way of like letting that female like... You're kind of performing the role of protecting the feminine. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess the problem goes when you take that a little too far or when that becomes, yeah. you start to shrivel up that feminine part. But also I think the idea that the feminine doesn't have any tools of its own is also not really useful. Like females, well, let me not say females, but the feminine can certainly embody a sense of aggression when needed or protection to oneself. Feminine does not mean inherently vulnerable in all circumstances, no matter what, right? And I think that's what's kind of happening is that we've... Depreciation of the strength of the feminine. Yeah. And, and we have rendered these kids without many tools other than, you know, call out culture or mm -hmm. a kind of a patronizing like plea to authority you know there's not a lot of discussion of like well if you are a feminine girl and you end up with some kind of unwanted attention or unwanted harassment what can you do I mean there's not a lot of conversations about that um so I don't know I, I don't what think what do you think about that um have you have you helped to prepare young women to <laughs> to interact with uh, rowdy uh, sexual uh, advances or um, what's your stance on that? And there's got to be a line between uh, yeah. completely just caving in to every sexual right. advance and having it all be trauma. Like, right. like, how do you? <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, first of all, to go back to what we were discussing earlier, one of the issues is kids can't really parse out what they actually like versus what the culture tells them they should be either afraid of or in preference to, right? So in, in the concept of consent culture, there's not a lot of room for like, do you as an individual want this person to reach out and hold your hand, for example? You know, like if you like that person, even if they didn't ask your permission, you might be on the inside kind of giddy, you have butterflies, you really hope he'll like reach out and hold your hand. But in, in the, the concept of consultant culture, there's no room for that. So I would say first and foremost, kids have to know what they like. 
You know, that seems so fundamental, but when you're infiltrated with a million ideas of what is right and what is wrong and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, Hmm. it's hard to know what you like. Granted, you know, we're also coming off the heels of, um, you know, girls being told you always have to be kind and sweet and accepting a man's advances, right? So I understand why we're here. Um, But we need to have room for kids to figure out what do they like. Um, So that would be the first step. And I often do work with kids who they might recount something that they initially say, oh, this really horrible thing happened to me, for example. And then if they start to explain what it was and it turns out to have been really maybe more benign than what they're thinking in their mind, we might kind of break that down and try to look at that from different angles and um, try to understand if they had any agency in the situation and did the other person really have such a malicious perspective as you might have imagined them to have. Um, Those are important things to be able to sort through and not just put everything in a box like, oh, if, if this behavior met this specific checklist of criteria then it's a bad behavior and if this behavior met all these positive criteria it's good like not necessarily either it makes me think of the that that one story about like there's two trees in a garden and uh and you're told not to eat the one tree which is the knowledge (laughs) tree well it seems like we've taken the well there's (laughs) but there's the tree of life right and uh it seems like we've taken the tree of life both I mean that by the tree that creates life and the tree of living life and plastered it with consent forms so that the, we don't, we can't even, the kid can't even see the, or experience that fruit because it's, yeah. it's wrapped in all this bubble wrap. Now yeah. it's like a Trader Joe's pack of apples, you know, it's more <laughs> yeah. plastic than fiber. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, are you hopeful about, um, things or do you, do you, well, I, I let's say, do you feel like you have a lot of work to do and do you feel capable and w- how can society be more aware of your work and people like you? Um, do you think that there's a need for more people tackling issues that you do? Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm, whenever people show interest, I practically beg other clinicians, like you need to be helping. Like it's a scary time. Um, I, I have a lot of work to do. And I can't, I mean, it's not something anyone can do. I mean, I can't do it all. We need society to be thinking in a more kind of careful way about what's happening. Am I hopeful? I don't know. I mean, sometimes I think sometime within the next, you know, maybe eight to 15 years when a lot of young ROGD kids who have medically transitioned, detransition and tell their stories, then maybe will we'll kind of create some new ways of, of managing that. I think it's an unintended consequence of something that might be potentially rooted in good, right? But I think it's undeniable that this is impacting a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't be in this position thinking about their gender. How do you think that the, the discourse can... Um, I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to practice this. But... Yeah. Um, there is the, I don't want it to go overboard, but yeah. these stories need to be told. Yeah. And, and I know that there'll be interests that will push this in directions that I don't necessarily think will be good. Um, yeah. But regardless of that, you know, doing the calculation, like, you know, I was just reading a story where somebody in California got all this federal money to 
run these, uh, basically to run, uh, basically an experiment on young women and give them double mastectomies. And then like five years later, are you satisfied? You know, and the the kids are as young as 13 and 14 that are getting their bodies, uh, 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 changed. Um, and so there's some pretty big things in the balance. Yeah. And how do you deal, how do you deal with parents to like give them the tools to not worry so much or, or to approach their child in a way that doesn't hyper uh, hyphenate or uh, exacerbate. Oh, that's hard. You know, we could probably do another hour on that question yeah. alone. Um, it's that's the hardest. I think that's the hardest question because parents are understandably petrified because they also are steeped in information and reading articles like the one you're talking about and they know that some kids will absolutely follow some medical procedures and transition um and so when people are in a desperate place full of fear they often act you know very intensely and that doesn't always help right sometimes it can kind of dig a kid's heels in more so I try to encourage parents to be honest and speak from the heart, but also try to be neutral if possible. That's not an easy thing to do. But, you know, we have to remember kids are erratic, you know, not to denigrate the the huge life questions they're facing. That's why. I mean, they're facing some of the most important questions of their life. So they may act erratically, but it's important for parents to try and and be an adult about things, if that makes any sense. <laughs> um, but then again, you know, I I don't I don't try to downplay just the incredible amount of anxiety and fear that parents are kind of carrying all the time and it you know like I think Lisa said this in her interview it's really hard because they're pretty isolated they can't really talk to anybody about it and they're kind of dealing with this all by themselves so it's really not an easy place to be um I create videos for parents on Patreon so I will kind of answer questions that are frequently asked questions that I get, or I'll do like series based on different topics. I do question and answers based on specific cases that parents will share with me. And parents have found that to be useful. I mean, I I often get really positive feedback and um, sometimes the strategies work really well and kids are able to kind of shift the way they're experiencing themselves. And then sometimes they don't. And sometimes parents will send their kid off to college and like not see them again. It's really intense and hard. Um, but I, I try to acknowledge that like, I recognize this is a weird time. And I think that just hearing that from a professional is often really a big relief because they're on you know the heels of calling a psychiatrist who tells them, well, you know, you just have to like learn to love your son, you know, or they're gonna kill themselves. And so to hear a professional say, you know, I, I don't know if I think that this child should transition. I think we should be cautious and careful. That alone seems to be really comforting. Can I ask you one more question? I, I know yeah. our hour is up and yeah, psychologists sure. work on a hourly schedule, but um, what, <laughs> what got you into this work? Uh, not just uh, this topic, this specialty, but what, 
what prompted you to be a counselor? Mm. Well, um, like many good Arab kids, I started undergrad as pre-med. <laughs> um, and I... I didn't love it and I was like my brain doesn't understand chemistry that much but my psychology classes were fascinating and I was just really interested in you know how people work and how families operate and how pathology is I think a lot of beginning psychologists are interested in like the weird stuff so to speak like schizophrenia and like dissociative disorders um, but you know as I as I just continued to study and work in the field, I realized like, oh, there's much more common human problems that are interesting to me. It's not the anomalies that I find really interesting. It's like the things that we share in common. Um, and I think to tie it back to my work, when I look at these kids that I work with, I very much see myself in them. I mean, I can totally empathize with the root of what's going on with them. Because when you get past the scripts that they learned online and you really get to know them as a human being, it's so relatable to struggle with the things that they're struggling with. So um, I think that therapy and psychology, it's a philosophy. And so I'm really interested in ideas and I don't think by any means that we have put our thumb exactly on what it means to be human yet. And so I don't think psychology is ever going to be done learning, and I hope to be a therapist who's open enough to shifting my perspectives and, and learning what I can from my clients. Are your parents uh, both from, my parents I was going to say Arabia, Egypt. but I know that's Well, they're from Egypt, oh. but they, they left pretty young. So my mom left Egypt when she was like 12. My dad was in his 20s. So I grew up in Canada and then Florida, California. I've grown up kind of all, all over the place. Mm-hmm. So uh, you've been immersed in American culture then. Is there, I, this is a whole other conversation I, I want to have with you about like the Arabic uh, frame of mind or like at least your her inheritance mm -hmm. and how that shaped your perspective on things. But That's a very interesting thing. I think it would be really cool if you read that book by Ethan Waters before we talk next. Like I'm sure okay. you have a reading list that's up to your eyeballs, but that is such an amazing book. What's it called again? I Crazy Like notes. Us. Okay. And reading okay. that, I mean, I was able to weave in a lot of my childhood experiences. And my family is not traditional by any stretch of the imagination. But still, when you come from a different culture, there are still flavors in the way you live your life that you can't just kind of separate. So it's been interesting as a person of kind of mixed cultural heritage to read that book. So I think it would be a cool jumping point for maybe another conversation all right i'll dive into that okay dive into that. well it was so nice to talk to you thank you so much yeah sure i hope you have a good rest of your day yeah you too oh, happy wait, sunday wait, wait what happens now oh um we hang up 